Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. Last night on January 10th, 2024. Wow, it's 2024. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Um, I attended an in-person screening of this new awesome movie called Undivide Us. Um, it's a memorable name. Um, and it was about, if I may summarize, the, the, the polarization in America and how to kind of tackle having these conversations that seem to either not be happening and are pulling us apart by them not happening, or they are happening and they are pulling us apart, or it's not even a conversation and it's just a physical brawl, <laughs> which is also not ideal, um, and kind of how to fix it. And so I'm honored to be talking to Ben Klutze today about this because he's one of the masterminds behind this film. He is the director of the Program on Pluralism and Civil Exchange at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and I'm so excited to talk to him. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Juliet. Great to be here. So, maybe the hardest question, but mm-hmm. I don't think it is, <laughs> compared to what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? What you should know that you do not. Wow, I'm I'm always um, careful not to offer uh, <laughs> advice because you know we're all learners, right? But I always say to young people that try your hands at as many things as possible as you can do uh, when you're young. You know, for instance, if you get your first job, you know, regardless of whatever it is, seek as many responsibilities as possible so you can learn, you know, what what you're good at. Um, and you can explore different things because I think that when you're young, you know, discovery phase in your life. And I think you should, you should take that very, very seriously. So do as many things as possible, as many things as you can do and, and learn from that. That's such a good piece of advice. It's so timely because Mm -hmm. I'm about to restart school. Oh. And last semester I did not handle my responsibility maybe the way (laughs) I should have. Um, and, and I still did fine. Yeah. But it is an important lesson to learn as early on as possible that actually it's true. With great mm-hmm. power comes great <laughs> responsibility. Um, so with the new year, with the new semester, mm-hmm. this is some perfect advice. There uh, you go. <laughs> so the movie is fantastic. Oh, thank great you. job. Thank you. Um, I'll give the credit to uh, Krista Kendall, who's the director. But yeah, she did a really great job. Yeah, well... You two together, I would say. <laughs> um, An interview with her soon to come. I'm super excited about that. Excellent. Um, but I, I know I kind of took my shot at explaining what the movie is about, but I want to hear it from you. What is the movie about and what lessons does it teach us? What does it highlight that's important to know? Yeah, well, the movie takes this approach of explorers, right? Tony, uh, who's my my partner in crime in this effort, he wrote a book called I Citizen about um, the ways in which elites are very polarized in our society. Talk about elites, we mean, you know, whether it's academia or it's Congress, you know, you can you can clearly see how, you know, um, there are, you know, strong divisions in those areas. But he says, look, the, the average American isn't as divided as as we might think. And I've been doing a lot of, you know, thinking and, and, and research on polarization um, and so we wanted to test this out. Um, and that's, that's what really got this project started. Um, you know, going to all these different um, parts of America, you know, Pittsburgh, Phoenix, Atlanta, talk to just regular Americans, see if they can have difficult conversations. And we learned some interesting things. So we, I, I particularly went in not very sure what we were going to learn, you know, from this because I think I was, maybe I took a, a lot more of a pessimistic view about um, where we are in terms of our divisions. And I think I came out 
less pessimistic. And I kind of want to get into the, the methodology of this experiment. You guys all refer to it as an experiment. And there's something about that that is heartwarming, especially in the context of the results being more positive than maybe we would have thought. Um, and we'll get into that. But I kind of want to take a, a lot of steps back and ask you to give us kind of a short autobiography. Because we know it would take a lifetime to actually give an autobiography because... You've lived a life, um, and and you still have a lot of life to go. Um, I, I hope, and I, I think I know. I hope. Um, I hope. <laughs> but what has led you, not just to this project, but to the ideals that this project represents? And what are some important, like, threads in your life that were necessary for you to get here and to realize that this was a problem worth tackling and that the ideals that this endeavor represents were worth d defending and saving and exploring. Mm. That's, a, that's a really interesting and a big question. I take the ability to express oneself very, very seriously, uh, to have the freedom to do that, the liberty to do that. Because growing up, it, it didn't come very easily because there were certain conditions um, on the ground, so to speak. I grew up in Ghana, West Africa. And I grew up at a time when we had a, you know, a military rule. And, you know, we had a Marxist revolution in the late 70s, early 80s. And people like my dad who was an entrepreneur, was uh, nearly thrown in jail, but he was harassed. Uh, and, and you know, about a third or two-thirds of his assets were taken away from him. Uh, he was the kind of person who grew up very poor, but found his way through entrepreneurship, built a business and employed hundreds of people. But uh, he was going through this really difficult time because of the sort of authoritarian military system that, that we had. And he would tell me that if you walk outside of our home, uh, do not talk about politics. Just avoid it completely. Don't, don't challenge uh, the, th those in power. Um, don't say anything critical. Don't say anything that would give the indication that you lean one way or another on any particular issue. And that was a little challenging for me to navigate. Um, so I just decided to just be quiet most of the time. And something changed for me when I came to America. Um, I, I talk about some of this stuff in the, in the movie. But, you know, I'm, I'm studying. Uh, I'm studying all kinds of interesting things, economics and political science. And, you know, I get into philosophy and it's really exciting I often joke that, you know, philosophy is sort of my, my first love uh, because it just opened up so much to me. Um, but in, in my very first philosophy course, I can still remember pretty much every single thing that I learned in that class. Um, it, it was just really amazing. And at the end of that course, you know, I get an A uh, and I'm really excited. I pick up my paper and at the bottom of my paper, my professor writes, you have a lot of good things to say, say them in class. And that was kind of a, a transformational moment for me because no one had ever really said that to me before. And I contrast that with, you know, what the conversation I had with my dad about, you know, just not stay, staying quiet, not saying anything and, and so on. Um, and I started to take a lot of courses with this particular professor who said that I have a lot of things to say, say them in class, John Dreyer, really amazing man. And every single day in class, he would ask me to say something. Every single day. That's awesome. Ben Kutze, what's the main point of this argument? How would you counter this? What do you think the author is saying? And it, it was just every single day. And I, I, I often say that, you know, John gave me a voice uh, that I didn't know that I had. And that voice just transformed me from a very quiet and reserved kid to a confident young man. And when I go around the country talking to students because I work a lot with students. I do tell them that, uh, 
those values, uh, freedom of expression and speech and all those things that are enshrined in the Bill of Rights are extremely important and we have to work hard to, to preserve them. It means that, you know, sometimes we will have difficult conversations. There will be robust debates, but we should work hard not to shut people down and, and, you know, silence them. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, Something that has really struck me and these sorts of conversations about how immigrants of America feel about Mm. American culture, not, not modern culture necessarily, but the constitutional culture and the ideas that this country was founded upon. It's, it's striking to me how people like my mom or other immigrants feel so much more connected with those ideals, maybe not always across the board, but generally they feel more connected to these ideas than it seems a lot of Americans, like land-born Americans, Mm -hmm. Um, especially kids my age. Because I remember the moment when I decided that I was explicitly proud to be an American and it wasn't just an inherited thing, that it was a choice. Mm -hmm. And that felt like a really important moment. I guess kind of where I'm leading with this is you can say something and obviously even you sharing your story here right now like this imparts the emotion and the importance of these lessons and these values. Um, But I guess what has communicating this and sharing this with other people, what has it taught you about actually imparting these ideas? What have you found for yourself to be the best way to express this and to impart that on people who, even though it's inherited, maybe take it for granted, really? And do they take it for granted or am I a little cynical? <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're right. I think Americans, you know, those who are born in America, I think do take a lot of these things for granted. And those of us who have experienced something different, right? Um, something different. Uh, I think that we see the contrast and we tend to value uh, what we see here very, very valuably. Because I think that the, I feel as though that the natural instinct, our natural instincts um, go towards, you know, safetyism, paternalism, control. And, you know, it reminds me of a really wonderful article by James Buchanan, I think in 2005, before he he passed away, called Afraid to be Free. And in that article, he talks about how, you know, those of us who care about liberty um, feel as though as soon as we go out there and preach liberty, 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 people are going to be so excited about it. They're going to, you know, want to embrace it and and run with it and, and so on. But that's not the case. Um, I think there are a lot of experiences that have shown us that people care um, a lot about security. Uh, and if you are given that, if you give them the options and in, in difficult times, they'll probably choose security over, over liberty. Um, and that it's something that you have to work hard at culturally and um, kind of show people how important it is. And I, you know, you cannot teach that in a vacuum. I think that you always have to show what it's like when it's not there. And I think some of our stories help explain what it feels like when you don't have it. I think liberalism is the kind of thing that um, you take for granted until it's, it's gone and you realize that, oh my gosh, we had something really, really good here. So how would you describe liberalism and liberty? What does that mean to you? Obviously your story conveys part of it, but how would you define it? And maybe give an example. Okay. I, I don't know if that's a little nebulous. <laughs> yeah, I, I the way that I like to describe liberalism uh, is that it's the the default position um, that we are one another's dignified equals, and that we have to treat each other with with respect, with equal dignity, because we are equally free. Um, and the Declaration of Independence. The opening line is that 
uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that uh, all men are created equal. Um, and I recently, not recently, maybe a couple of years ago, in talking to Danielle Allen, who's a professor at Harvard, um, uh, wrote a really amazing book called Our Declaration, uh, highlights, you know, one one thing that she, she worries that, you know, classical liberals don't emphasize enough is that, uh, you know, we don't talk about the equality part of it, which, which the comes first before the liberty part. Uh, not that we want to prioritize one over the other, but it's a really, really important concept that we should talk about a lot, along with liberty. So we have equal dignity. We, ha- we are equally free. And <clears throat> as Emily Chamley Wright would say, there are four corners of liberalism um, that, you know, we have economic liberalism. Uh, that is the stuff of Adam Smith. The idea that, you know, we have access to, to property. We can own property. And that we can take that property and we can uh, exchange that for our mutual benefit. Uh, that's that's an important part of, of liberalism. Um, the other is political liberalism, that we can uh, we should have access to a political process, that we can have a voice, we can we can we can vote, we can participate. That's important. Uh, we there's cultural liberalism, which is a third one, and that we have the chance to practice our different, you know, cultural practices, uh, you know, live out our beliefs uh, as, as best as we can. And then finally, epistemic liberalism, uh, the, the, the freedom of thought, the freedom of expression, and that in a truly liberal society, we have to be able to, to challenge orthodoxies, to, to speak up, to um, innovate, to, to do all kinds of, you know, cool things based on uh, innovative ideas that, that we have. And so I think that a real liberal society is sort of firing on all these four cylinders. Now, there will be contestation, um, uh, you know, in the spectrum of, of, of liberals because, you know, there are different uh, uh, kinds of liberals. Um, there are those who think that, you know, the, the market system ought to be a little bit more regulated and others who feel like uh, less so. Um, there will be some some contestation there, but I think a liberal society um, is very robust in all these sort of four corners. So, kind of back to the movie a little bit, mm-hmm. and how the movie relates to this, mm-hmm. and I th- I think it's super practical, but mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How does polarization fit into this picture? Is it a symptom of something that happens in liberalism? Is it a disease that is plaguing liberalism? Um, how do you characterize polarization in our current society and as it relates to this structure that we purportedly exist within, if we do? <clears throat> that's, a, that's a really good question. Now, you know, the way that I got into this. I work at Mercatus. Um, at, at Mercatus, we think a lot about markets and the role of markets in fostering innovation, in advancing human flourishing. Um, but we don't just care about um, the, the, the markets for, for goods and services and that kind of thing, but we also care about the marketplace of ideas because it is, it is that, that's the, the place where um, innovative things emerge. That's how uh, entrepreneurs can, can sort of take those ideas and, and run with them, develop new things and so on. But we noticed that the marketplace of ideas has been sort of reoriented towards conflict and discord. I think that makes it very, very difficult um, for us to, because, it, you know, the reason we care about markets generating a, a flourishing society is also because that there will be, um, we'll have peace right? Uh, you need a peaceful society so the markets can thrive and so on. But polarization just doesn't, doesn't get us there. So the ways in which that the, the marketplace of ideas, um, you know, it's been reoriented towards conflict and discord, um, as a result of polarization isn't a great thing. And so we were spending some time thinking about how can we coexist and, and live together peacefully? Uh, you know, in the in the context of polarization, and I think that's where the the movie comes in. 
So this is sort of an effort to kind of, you know, how do we figure this out, right? And, you know, the polarization uh, can be challenging, but it's not always a bad thing. It just sometimes it shows that, look, we're, 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 we're different and we have different views and perspectives. Um, but there are ways in which polarization can go south very quickly. So, And so I guess this is a part where we talk about the methodology. Mm. Um, whereas maybe the time I want to mention that I, I describe you as a conversation facilitator. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, synonymously a liberalism facilitator. <laughs> um, and so I don't know if you would describe yourself in that way, but I thought that that was maybe the the broadest, most descriptive yet concise way to describe I like you. it. I like it. I haven't described myself that way before, but I like it. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, you should, you should actually take it and introduce yourself <clears throat> as such. Um, there you go. So I, I found that you do this outside of the movie, but the movie kind of captures mm-hmm. a specific method of conversation facilitation mm-hmm. and a kind of venture into this world of polarization. And so how do you do that, this facilitation? And mm-hmm. what were the results? What did you find about polarization and actually about the way that people engage with each other in this setting? Yeah, another great question. Um, the The method is really, I think, fairly simple, but not always easy to do. It's reflective listening. Um, it's... You know, we have a fancy term called the triadic illumination, but uh, I think some say, you know, it's it's what they call the Turing test, right? And I think the Turing test um, was developed, you know, decades ago, but I think Alan Turing is the name. Um, and, and it was to try to figure out if a computer can um, uh, sort of pass the Turing test as in uh, behave in a way that you'd expect the human being to behave. Um, <clears throat> so what we're trying to do with this method of facilitation is figure out whether someone can get in the mind of somebody else or can pretend like there's someone else and make a case for why they, they believe what they believe. So, you know, we kick things off with a, you know, pretty um, simple question, which one of these has the most impact on human happiness, cats, dogs, you know, or both, neither. Um, And, you know, we we gave we give them these paddles uh, to to pick their options. The orange paddle uh, goes. You know, if if you if you're uh, if you're a dog person, you 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 pick the purple uh, paddle. If you're a cat person, and you pick the rose paddle. If you are in between, and so we give you know participants uh, maybe sixty seconds or so to kind of think about their choice and, and write down a couple of points and reasons why they, they pick um, the, the options that they pick. And then, you know, they do the big reveal. Okay. So I see uh, Juliet, you are a uh, cat person. Correct. <laughs> and, um, you know, Ben, you are a dog person. <clears throat> now, Ben, can you uh, say, you know, why you think that Juliet might be a cat person? And so I kind of have to go, okay, wait a second. Uh, let's see. Maybe she grew up with, with cats. Maybe she likes ways in which cats might be easy to, to, to kind of manage. Um, you know, and, you know, I might say a couple of things like that and, and the facilitator will ask, so what did, what did, uh, Julia, what did Ben get right? It's like, oh, he only got, I don't know, 30%, right? Um, and then you add the other 70% that I missed, like, okay, there are all these other reasons why you care about cats. And then we'll do the other way around as well. Like, you know, Juliet, can you say why Ben might be a dog person? Well, you know, Ben likes to, you know, go running, you know, and so he likes to do that with this dog. Uh, you know, he loves the way that, you know, his dog might welcome him when he gets home and, you know, all these things. Um, like, oh, what did what did Ben get right? Um, what did Juliet get right? Sorry. I said, wow, okay, seventy uh, percent, right? And I'd say some other things like, yes. you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so we kind of go back and forth. Um, we'll ask the person who is for both or prefers rabbits or whatever. And say, well, I, you know, uh, I think I've 
this is interesting and we'll ask um, what folks have learned, um, you know, about each other, you know, from this and what else, what have we not talked about? This is a part of research about cats and, and or maybe dogs and that we have not explored yet. And we'll talk about those things. But as we do that, we realize that, um, you know, we're learning some interesting things about each other, that we're giving each other a little bit more, more grace in these conversations. Um, and that, so we move from cats and dogs. We talk about more difficult conversation, obviously difficult topics, wrong direction, right direction of the country, <clears throat> immigration, uh, abortion, guns, and all these other things. But it's the same approach, right? Why do you think this person might be, you know, uh, stronger in border control? And this person thinks that, you know, uh, we should have open borders or maybe a, a less um, strict um, <clears throat> immigration system. And there's just a lot that we learn from that experience. Um, and, and that's that's sort of the, the, the approach. And I realized that when you are having a conversation and listening not to respond with a quip or like a, you know, or as in, as in like you're debating someone, um, you know, and you're showing them that you're taking the time to listen to them. I think it, it kind of lowers their guard a little bit and um, you kind of see each other's humanity. I think that's what we're, we're going for. So now we're going to, I mean, as we continue, get into the practice of this. Mm. Um, how infectious is this, right? Mm. So it lowers the the guard of the people engaged in the conversation. And these were small groups, right? Mm. It looked like about six mm -hmm. people per mm -hmm. conversation. And it mm -hmm. could maybe be more, maybe less. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe it changes how each of those six people continues to engage in conversation with people mm -hmm. outside of the group. Mm -hmm. um, that seems kind of slow growth and this problem seems a little pressing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not that that's a bad thing in itself, right? Any mm -hmm. change is welcome and mm -hmm. changing one person's life is still immensely valuable, but it is a countrywide problem. Mm -hmm. And so how, I mean, I, I guess the first part of this is how much do you think us both learning how to have this conversation will have a multiplier in other conversations we have and for other people, because it seems like it's a learned mm -hmm. skill set that you have to be kind of taught how to have these sorts of conversations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas yelling at each other is maybe more natural and instinctual, um, something <laughs> to be overcome maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think that because we are, now sorting ourselves into you know groups um like-minded groups uh you know it's very likely that you know where you live geographically um the people who live around you agree with you on on most things um we are not getting as much practice in this in in talking with people who are quite different from us <clears throat> you know in terms of their perspectives and ideas and, and so on. And so there's, there's an element of this that requires um, a lot of practice. The reason I think that a medium like a film helps is that you provide an opportunity for lots and lots of people to actually see it. And that hopefully they will be inspired by it. Uh, the research on, on contact theory, uh, which is, you know, so the broad category of, um, interactions that you know, people who are together and are, they're talking, the ways in which that diffuses polarization and so on and so forth. Um, a lot of research on this stuff indicates that it, it, it's helpful, especially in the short term. But when people are removed from this experience a week or two or three, um, you know, it's not as clear that, you know, it's, it's sustainable. And so we have to get into practice of doing this, not as a one-off thing, but uh, consistently over a a long period of time, uh, what we're experiencing with polarization um, cannot be addressed with a silver bullet. Uh, and so, um, I I think that there are lots and lots of other groups that are doing different things, 
So this is one piece uh, of the puzzle that we hope that will resonate with others. But, you know, just trying to have the conversation. Now, there are three, you know, principles that we often talk about. You know, when I work with students and we do something called the pluralist lab, three things. It's uh, number one is respect, which goes back to the whole concept of equal dignity, which is firmly rooted in, in liberalism, that we give each other that. And we all have a right to be here, to, to be in this, in this space. And the second thing is uh, authenticity, that we co- we're coming to this um, discussion with uh, our, our true selves, you know, to the extent that people are masking their views. And it's a thing because, you know, we know uh, from the, the research that, uh, you know, college students in particular, particular are, are self-censoring. Um, we want them to come to the table with the, the belief that they can express themselves um, without, without hiding anything. And then, you know, finally, curiosity, uh, exploring these uh, conversations and thinking of each other as really amazing mysteries to, to uncover uh, in your fellow citizen. Very in, in, an interesting mystery. Um, I, I think that, you know, just thinking about these three things over and over again helps us get there. Um, you know, I often talk about Monica Guzman's book, I Never Thought of It That Way. Um, you know, she, she talks about this really amazing uh, experience that um, she had after the 2016 election going, uh, you know, from her, you know, her county in, in Washington, she lives in Seattle and, you know, in the aftermath of the 2016 election, you know, 76% of her county voted for Hillary Clinton. Uh, but, uh, the entire country didn't vote that way and she was surprised. So she, uh, along with her friends, take a bus uh, and go to a different part of the country that had sort of the very opposite, right? Where they go to a part of Oregon where 76% of, of that county voted for Donald Trump. And they have, um, you know, I think a full day there and they have lots and lots of conversations. And at the end of the conversation, one of the folks who sort of hosted the, them um, said that, you know, for the very first time he felt seen, you know, and I think that um, when you um, allow someone to feel seen, it does change uh, the the dynamics of of a relationship, and I think that's what um, we lack, and we need to do more and more of that. So, yeah, that the there there are no easy answers uh, about scalability, and I've, I've I get these questions a lot uh, <laughs> about scaling. How do we scale this? Um, I, I love it's it's a bottom up proposition um, that we're making here and that we want individuals to really be confident that this is possible. And part of this thing with the movie is to show people that it's possible to have these conversations. Uh, It doesn't mean it's always easy and it doesn't mean that you always have to have these conversations, but when the opportunity presents itself, it's really possible. So go for it. And I think that that's great. I've, especially as someone of my generation. And I guess people nowadays kind of maybe across the board feel like this, but coming of age in this era, it's hard to feel as though you could do anything except everyone is telling you that it's your responsibility. And I I know I've talked a lot about this on the podcast uh, listeners. And this has kind of been something I've been dealing with for the past like year since I realized I felt this way and realized that a lot of people feel this way. Um, But you're reminding me that, that the movie does something and that obviously it's not that I thought that it didn't do anything. (laughs) It was deeply moving. Um, But that even just having this conversation might spark that in someone else, Mm -hmm. whoever's listening, Mm -hmm. if not now, years down the road, maybe even. And so I guess instead of asking you to solve the problem mm-hmm. or what the solution is, I want to ask you something that might be a little different than mm-hmm. what other people talking to you about this or asking you questions about might ask, which might be more productive. Um, recently, I've become swept up in this idea of institutions being super important, especially if the work we do now and the thoughts we're having now are going to influence the future. And if we're going to respect 
the past, the, the founding, the ideals, the people who have worked so hard to get us where we are today and to kind of pass it forward. And that's kind of why we're here, isn't it? Um, if not the only reason why, that must be part of it. And so in order to do that, you need an institution that lasts beyond just us sitting here having this conversation right now. And so what are the sorts of qualities or characteristics of an institution, any sort of institution, it could be a university, it could be some sort of parallel institution, it could be pluralist labs, a podcast, any sort of, I use institution very, very vaguely, like norms, Mm -hmm. things that continue beyond individuals. Mm -hmm. What are the characteristics that they would need to have to uphold these principles? That's a great question. Also difficult. (laughs) Very difficult. I think of institutions the way that Yuval Levin defines them in his book, A Time to Build. And he says that they they are the durable forms of our lives together. Um, And they can take different shapes and different forms. And so, you know, you're right that you have to think about these things fairly loosely. Um, You know, we can think of institution as, you know, the military or the church or um, the rule of law, gift giving. Uh, And I think all of these things are important institutions that we need to develop um, ways in which any institutions that we are a part of have this sort of pluralistic ethos. And your question is about what are the, the, the values that are relevant for institutions that are pluralistic or liberal, broadly speaking, um, that they are sustainable over a long period of time? I think that one thing that's really, really important is virtues. I've been thinking a lot about Virtues, because I think that when I think about your your generation, um, you, you know, even though sometimes people think that you guys don't don't care about these things, I think you do a lot, and I think that there's a a particular focus on, let's say, justice as a virtue, and I think that the, there are people who are very concerned about you know the challenges they see around the world, and they want justice. They want to address uh, the, the problems justly. I think it's important for institutions to embody justice as an important virtue. Um, but we have to think about these things in a balanced way. And I think that a society cannot thrive on, on justice alone. Um, but we need things like humility. We need prudence. We need wisdom. Uh, we need courage. Um, and I think that institutions that help to guide people, uh, to, 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 you know, to form people uh, with, with virtues that are, are balanced, I think that will thrive over a long uh, period of time. That requires another important virtue, patience. Um, and then some of the changes that we want to see um, may not happen overnight, that we have to, you know, give, give ourselves some, some time to see them, you know, work their way through, through all, all these different systems and institutions. So I would say that focusing on, on virtues is really important um, and that thinking about them in, in balanced ways are very, very important. And that we have to look at the world or learn to look at the world, not with one lens, but with multiple lenses. Um, I think that's where humility and, and, and prudence comes in um, because then we have to think about the ways in which we ourselves could be, could be fallible and, um, and so on. But yeah, I, I think that we have to... Um, think about these things as important, important 
virtues to to embody um, within uh, all of our institutions because I think that's where that institutions have lost uh, trust um, over time. You gave such a good answer, and I, <laughs> my I'm going to offer you now um, an aspect of I think institutions that promote pluralism and these virtues that is maybe more less meta. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. what your thoughts are going to be. Um, and I guess I kind of mentioned this a little bit before, but mm-hmm. something that was really powerful about the film and seeing these interactions between people who didn't agree was that it was in person, right? Mm-hmm. These people were together face to face. And there's something about that that made it so much more moving to watch, but I think also made it easier for them to have this conversation. Um, and so I'm kind of wondering, is the institution of being in person or the aspect of mm-hmm. a potential institution being in person, mm-hmm. how important is that? And does that mean that we couldn't have things online or that there's a limitation to what we can do online and how we can connect, especially as we're trying to come together um, instead of, I don't know, like, is, mm-hmm. is it a hindrance to deeper connection, do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I love technology. I love um, the virtual space. I love the things that it allows us to do. It's just not a perfect substitute for in-person interactions. Um, I often talk about um, Juliana Schroeder's work. Um, she's at UC Berkeley. Uh, she studies the psychology of, of human interactions. And, uh, you know, a lot of her work um, tries to explore you know, these things, how we engage in social media and the virtual space and all of that. And it's just a, there's a hierarchy uh, of things that are really, really, um, you know, from, from good to great, right? I mean, text-based communication helps us a lot, but it's even better to have audio um, so we can hear someone's voice. It's even better to see someone um, on on a screen and obviously really, really great if you can be in person. So, and she says, look, text-based communication uh, can be dehumanizing um, because there are things that you don't pick up in text. And when we are face-to-face, we can see each other. We can pick up on a lot of, a lot of cues. Um, You know, when someone is, um, you know, getting upset about something, someone is, is, is um, becoming emotional about something, distracted about something. Um, you can pick up these things and you can calibrate, you know, responses based on that, you know, to foster better relationships. Um, and I think that as we have, you know, spend, as we spend a lot of time uh, in the, uh, in the virtual space, some of these skills uh, tend to atrophy and we have to, try to, you know, um, work our way up and, and, and practice more. Um, it's, it's just sometimes we can't always do these things uh, in person. Right. So like I said, having the virtual, uh, thing is, is great. Uh, but it's just not a perfect substitute. Um, and I, I think that a lot of the stuff with, with technology, is that we're still learning. It's fairly new um, and we're still learning how to engage with it, how to, how to deal with it. Um, you know, reminds me of the emergence of the printing press and, you know, there was just so much that went on as a result and even wars that emerged as a result. And I'm not saying that we're going to have wars or I'm not anticipating wars uh, as a result of, you know, um, you know, sort of this emergence of this new technology, but um, I think that we're learning and we have to give each other uh, some you know, patience uh, to, to grapple with, with all of this. But yes, uh, in-person interactions, I think, is 
is really good if we can, you know, do that. When we get the chance to do it, we should. And I, I have to remind myself that if we hadn't actually invested in technology and continued to use it, which obviously it's super helpful for a lot of things, we wouldn't even be able to record this podcast without it. Right. Um, we wouldn't have had Zoom or any sort of technological communication that could even be face-to-face mm-hmm. if we hadn't used technology, right? Mm-hmm. So even mm-hmm. continual use of technology has led to less potentially dehumanizing mm-hmm. use of technology and creation of technology, which is mm-hmm. maybe a little trippy to think about <laughs> now that I'm trying to verbally communicate that. Um, mm-hmm. But second to last question. Mm-hmm. What advice would you have for an individual or a group of individuals that are either trying to venture out and create an institution to continue to to, to pass it forward and to engage in these conversations or have these sorts of virtues embedded in the way they engage with other people to share that, um, whether or not it's on a personal level or to actually create something that extends beyond them and their interactions. What advice would you have to someone who might be afraid or doesn't know what might be in store for them? Kind mm-hmm. of ties back to the first question, maybe your response to it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd say don't overthink it. Um, I think currently my bias will be towards action, just doing and you know, experimentation. There are lots of different things that we need to try to, to make, you know, this, this work. And when I say to make this work, I really want to back up for, for a second and, and talk about, you know, the kind of polarization that we mean. Cause I, I don't think that I've had the chance to sort of, um, spell it out, but there is political polarization um, it's the ideological distance that we have, you know, between parties. Uh, and that's, that's fine. You get a stark, you know, the, the contrast, right? You, you see that, okay, someone is pro-life and pro-choice and you can see where they are, where they stand on issues. I think for a very long time, we haven't really moved much on a lot of these differences, if anything at all we've come a little bit closer in terms of our views on, on, on these, uh, whether it's climate or guns or, or whatever. Um, what's happening now is not, goes beyond sort of these, these differences. It's what they call affective polarization. Some say toxic polarization, but it's no longer that, you know, the, the other person disagrees. Um, but oh, their views are dangerous. They are a threat to my existence and they're almost like, like an enemy to me. Um, and so what's happening is that because this is what people see on display all of the time, people going after each other politically, um, they tend to have a bit of an overestimation as to how extreme we, we each are on a number of things. But it turns out that, you know, the folks who are the most, polarized and have a hard time having these conversations and so on are the ones who are, you know, they call them most involved. They're tracking the news 24 seven on social media all the time on cable news and following everything. Um, that's a minority of the population, but they create the impression that everybody else um, is that polarized. And you have a lot of people in, in the middle who are like, what's going on? You know, and, you know, the experts put the numbers around 19, 18% or so. That's like 9% on, on either side of the uh, political spectrum that's as polarized and as sort of steeped in your, in your views. And so I think that there is a lot of hope that, you know, if you try something, if you, if you try creating an institution or an organization uh, that, you know, brings people together uh, seeks opportunities to have conversations across divides. I think you're going to, you know, succeed. Um, and so 
just just try and um, it will be beneficial. And I think the goal is to show that, uh, give people a little bit of confidence that they can do this and show that it's possible and uh, give them a little bit of hope. So put your screens down and stop watching the news <laughs> a little bit. Um, a little bit. That, that helps. Yes, definitely. But I, I politely remind you, listeners, that <laughs> you don't have to be looking at a screen to listen to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> there is this great visual in the movie about these moments that we see on the news mm-hmm. and how there's kind of this small part of of the group present that is on the screen but then there's all of these people the majority is actually on the outside of a given conflict that you can see i'm thinking of a specific physical brawl that shows up that you see Mm -hmm. on the in the movie yeah and i think that i mean to me is is a screaming reason why people should watch the movie because Mm -hmm. it is it's really great and it puts um in a visual, so many things that we're talking about now in a way that is super memorable. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of my little bit. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing your wisdom um, <laughs> and for doing all the work that you do because every second that you work on stuff like this and even that you you engage with other people outside of work in this way, you're upholding the pillars of liberalism. Um <laughs> I have one last question for you. Sure. What is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Wow, that's a a tough one. I often used to believe that people can always accurately assess and predict how they might act and respond under various circumstances. I have come to realize that that is not always the case, that we're not always the best judges of ourselves. Now, it doesn't mean that I I think that we should have anybody controlling us and, and, you know, (laughs) telling us what to do or anything like that. No. But, it's just really a point about humility and that you never know how you might react or respond when you're in somebody else's shoes. Um, and so I think about this often these days that, you know, I, I don't know how I might react or respond under certain circumstances. So I have to um, give give people a lot of leeway um, even when I perceive them to be making mistakes I, I have to I have to do that that's that's what I'd say once again I'd like to thank my guests for their time and insight I'd also like to thank you for listening to the great antidote podcast it means a lot the great antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette If you have any questions, any guests, or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at greatantidote at libertyfund.org. Thank you.